speak with interesting people about their game-changing ideas, fresh initiatives and out-of-the-box movements with an eye on the future. Today my guest is Andrew Dixon. Andrew is a renewable energy project developer with 15 years of experience developing large-scale wind and solar projects all around the country. He's currently the project manager for an Asian renewable energy hub project. It's a large-scale wind and solar project in the Pilbara, Western Australia to export energy to Indonesia and Singapore to power mines and mineral processing in the Pilbara and to produce green hydrogen for local and export markets. Outside of work, though, Andrew has a passion project. He's part of a team developing a rugged electric vehicle to transport pregnant women from remote villages to hospitals in northern Zimbabwe to help reduce maternal mortality. The potential for a project like this to scale in other developing countries is huge. So without further ado, can I say thanks so much for being a guest on the show today, Andrew, and taking the time to talk to us about the renewable space in Australia and also about this exciting project you've been working on for in, in Zimbabwe. Oh, hi, Lizzie. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you today. So can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and what got you into working in the renewable space? Yeah, so uh, I'm an engineer, electrical, electronic. Um, I was in the Navy for 10 years, um, but really I'm not a hardcore techie engineer. Uh, I'm more of a peoply engineer. I like um, the impact of projects and technologies on people and communities. So when I discovered renewables in 2004, I really felt, I felt that I'd sort of found my calling in effect. Um, and I, I love developing projects, but in particular, I love working with people. And so what, what were some of the first projects you'd been working on? I, I was interested to hear about uh, one that was a, an international one. Well, actually, the very first project I worked on was the Snowtown Wind Farm. Uh, it's a couple of hours drive north of Adelaide, um, right. a fairly infamous town. Uh, there, were, there were a series of uh, bodies found there in barrels in Snowtown. So uh, the town was an innocent bystander with that. They were sort of ring-ins who brought the bodies in, effectively. So, um, and the town... So, sorry, sorry I, I, I'm not across that. What, what did you say? They found bodies. Yeah, there was a, there's a classic case called Bodies in the Barrels, what? where a number of human bodies were found in barrels in a bank, in a disused bank vault in Snowtown. Oh. So it was it was pretty infamous, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and the town really, you know, suffered a big a big hit with that whole story. Uh, and they're also in the middle of a really prolonged drought. Right. And and you know, lots of disadvantage in that town. So yeah, we came in as a developer proposing to develop a big wind farm. And, you know, long story short, um, that project you know, ended up being built. Uh, that was three or four years of my life pretty intensively wow. and uh, it was it was a very successful project. Wow that's incredible I mean talk about turning a town around and what what impact did it have on the town? Well huge so firstly to the individual farmers who host wind turbines uh, many of those farmers I mean they tried to sell their land because they were struggling so much but nobody would buy it it was just barren windy isolated uh, farmland which turns out is perfect for a wind farm. <laughs> it's yeah, funny how nice. things go. So, I mean, just seeing the direct impact on those people and their lives, you know, having cash flow to, you know, to sort of drought-proof their farm effectively, income irrespective of the weather, 
because there's wind. And maybe to invest as well and diversify into something else too. Exactly. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, they can buy a an apartment in the city to send their kids to uni and they can, you know, buy equipment for their farm and, you know, bring their house up to speed after it's after years of neglect, those sorts of things. Yeah, sustainable so, living ultimately. Well, exactly. So, and really, you know, wind farms take up a, a tiny fraction, like 1% or 2% of of the farming land, so they can keep farming as normal. Yeah. Um, but it provides really steady income, so it's a it's a game changer for those families. Wow, that's just brilliant. But listen, going back, mm. I was really I'd done a bit of reading about this Pilbara project. But can you tell us a little bit more about the project in the Pilbara? What drove the project? I mean, was it a problem? A bit like we what you were just talking about in Snowtown. Was it a problem that needed to be solved socially and economically that created? What could be a boon opportunity in the renewable space in Australia up there? It's a massive project. Yeah, so it's a huge project. It's a it's currently an eleven thousand megawatt project, um, and it will it'll probably get bigger. Frankly, we I, can, mean, to me, I know I'm I'm a real pleb. I have no idea what how much energy that actually is. What would that power? Okay, so we we think that we can generate with with the higher capacity that we're working on, we can generate. Yeah. Uh, around 55 terawatt hours per year. And for context, Victoria consumes about 40 terawatt hours of electricity per year. So so it's it's a fair bit more than Victoria consumes in one year in one project. That's just incredible. But I also saw it's a, it seemed to be a brilliant opportunity to upskill Indigenous communities in the region. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the project is on, uh, it's a 7,000 square kilometre site, very big, uh, and the land is on determined exclusive native title land. So unlike a freehold farm in southern Australia, we are obliged by law to, to negotiate with the traditional owners. So that's, yeah, we've been meeting uh, with the Nungamata people for about four years uh, we're we're, we're yeah. in you know well into a negotiation for what's called an indigenous land use agreement, and that will that will include yeah. very considerable you know financial benefits, um, and that that really will be a game changer for that community because again it provides you know regular steady income for decades, multi generations, and that the challenge yeah. really is uh, is how to manage that money. How how yeah, that's what I mean is it put into some kind of trust yeah I don't know how does it work so that's what we're working on now but I mean our motivation is to 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 at least cause no harm we don't want to come in and drop this you know this massive amount of money money. onto a community that's not used to that I mean any community would struggle with that frankly so the the challenge is to set up the governance arrangement so that the money is well managed um, to do so in a way that gives self-determination to the traditional owners, yeah. um, in a way that supports them in the way they've asked to be supported, but is not paternalistic. So, yeah, yeah that's it's a non-trivial it's question. It's hard, isn't it? Because I often think about the investment in education that would be brilliant up there, but is that paternalistic for me to say that? Not at all. No, I mean, the commu- really the, the money will be uh, in the hands of the of the the board, yeah, you know, a board, and well, it's, um, there'll be a there'll be a committee set up by the community. Yeah, uh, we're ne- we're negotiating with the the directors, the elders, um, but the, yeah, there'll there'll be governance structures to make the decisions on where to invest the money, um, and yeah, it will be things like education, it will be businesses, it will be you know infrastructure yeah. like you know cyclone shelters, um, health facilities, those things. Yeah, yeah. 
Wow, that is such a game changer for that area. It really is. I mean, it's it's weaving the Indigenous people much closer into the economic fabric of the Pilbara, uh, which has been, you know, some, somewhat achieved with mining projects. But there's a really big difference between mining and renewable energy projects. I mean, simplistically, renewable energy projects don't take away the resource from the land. Uh, the resource is exactly the same at the end of the project as the start, you know, the wind and sun. Yeah. Uh, it's completely reversible at the end of the project. It doesn't leave a massive hole in the ground. It doesn't pollute. It's really a completely different scenario. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, yeah, it's chalk and cheese, isn't it? Exactly. So, And it's 14,000 square kilometre initial land package. I'm just reading it here. 7,000 square kilometres of prime land in the East Pilbara. Exactly. Wow. But the, the the important thing is that, I mean, even though the site is very big, we, we use a very small proportion of it, really uh, probably a yeah, ma- okay. maximum of two and a half percent of that land. So there's, oh, lots, okay. yeah, there's lots of wind turbines and solar panels, but there's way more empty space between them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, well, listen, I'd like to pivot now if I can because I was talking to you about your side project, which I loved, and you call it your passion project, the African Solar Taxi, which is simply brilliant, and I read the website, which I'll reference in the show notes, about the story behind why it began. I'd love you to let us know a little bit more about it and why it's so important. Mm, Sure. So um, maybe for context, I'll just wind back uh, a decade or so. So I'm involved with a bunch of people who've been designing and building and racing solar racing cars for for decades. So there's a race from Darwin to Adelaide. And basically, you know, people realise that if we can drive from Darwin to Adelaide, you know, right across Australia powered by the sun at, you know, at 100 kilometres an hour, why can't we drive around town in electric cars? I mean, this was 15 years ago. Bingo. So... (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> no problem, so, isn't it? but anyway we're still discussing it years later well so the, the team you know decided to challenge themselves and in fact a bunch of students at the university of south australia designed and built a car called trev which is the two-seater renewable energy vehicle and they ended yep. up driving that car from darwin to adelaide very lightweight sexy little car and I, I saw the car and I connected with the team and I said, look, if you can drive across Australia, can, can we drive around the world? So we formed a team called Team Trev and we borrowed the car from UniSA. We got a lot of sponsorship money. We upgraded the car, flew it to Geneva and drove from the UN headquarters around the world, uh, 28,000 kilometres in 80 days of driving for about $400 of electricity. Around the world in 80 days. Exactly. So that that was our first project. Um, But then we got a call from Africa a few months later saying, you know, we saw what you did around the world. Can you come and help us solve, help solve maternal mortality in northern Zimbabwe? So that's what we've been working on. So when you say you got a call from Africa, who called you? So it was uh, was a a lady from Zimbabwe. Um, She'd been working with an Italian non-profit organization, NGO called Chesvi. And they, they were working with a, a health uh, facility in northern Zim, building waiting mother's shelters so that pregnant women could wait at, you know, at the hospital in the last weeks of pregnancy. But the real challenge is transport poverty. Um, people in that area literally live in mud huts well away yeah. from you know, towns and they can't get, can't get themselves to care when they yeah. need it. So that's what we're, that's what we're helping to address. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about it. So, you know, what is it? 
So it's a it's a rugged, uh, light, low mass, lightweight electric vehicle. It looks a little bit like a big quad bike or an ATV or a small car. Um, I was actually thinking it looked pretty slick. It is pretty slick. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, but the, the key thing is that it has to be rugged because the roads there are really rough, you know, neglected roads. So yeah. we, we started designing the vehicle from the, from the tyre that we think would, you know, survive those conditions. And then, the, and then the suspension that fits onto it and then designed a chassis around that as well. Right. So in essence, it's a, it's a three person rugged, low mass electric vehicle. It'll have a driver sort of in the middle with handlebars, like a quad bike, and then two seats behind the driver for a pregnant lady and that lady's assistant, nurse, mother. Um, and it, we had a drive, you know, it'll have a range of around 80 kilometres, uh, all, all, you know, electric. So there's a battery under the driver's seat. And it will all be powered from solar charging stations at hospitals and health clinics. So it'll be based at the hospitals and health clinics. So they're called like a taxi service. They're already charged up and go out there. Exactly. Yeah. So well, So really what you're saying is they have to be 40 kilometres away at the very most. Yes. unless. Or do they take a battery with them and replace a battery? How does it work? I mean, is there a way of doing that? You could piggyback so, battery after battery? Yeah, the latter. So ultimately we would have a network of solar charging stations. So the car would drive okay. as yeah you know, as far as to the next health clinic recharge and then keep going so that's the theory um but the, the uh the, the great so you're heavily involved with the design which i get and that sounds fantastic so are you talking at the moment with partners about that kind of infrastructure that will facilitate it being a, a workable arrangement yeah so yeah we're finalizing the prototype vehicle and the plan is to send it to zimbabwe next year uh, and to run a trial, so to prove or to to prove the concept that you know how we've designed it, the way we imagine it, solving their needs actually does meet their needs and is viable. Yeah. So yeah, the the first thing is to really prove the concept. But it's important to note that we're not planning to manufacture these. We're you know we're not a commercial entity. We're a team of tinkerers and adventurers and explorers, really. Yeah. Um, but prove the, the concept kind. and then... The best free. kind, Andrew. That's what everyone wants. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're, we're very passionate around exploring, you know, these technologies for social benefit. So, you know, it really is developing a, a new form of transport that solves transport poverty that's not solved in other ways currently. That's that's what we believe anyway. Yeah. And, you know, I was I kind of touched on it the other day when I briefly spoke to you on the phone, but it's working on the kind of passion project like that triggered other potential projects and collaborations for you around the renewable mobility industry in Australia? Yeah, so there are others. I'm discovering others who are doing similar things. So um, so obviously there's a project called Mobility for Africa. I think you uh, interviewed Shantha yeah, recently. Shantha who I, yeah, who very kindly introduced me to you which is and talked about this passion project of yours exactly so i mean this is quite a big project it it takes it takes a lot of our spare time uh which we don't have much of frankly so we we just we just really want to finish the vehicle it's taken several years and we want to get it to zim get it on the ground and see if it works as we hope uh, and then plan next steps from there so yeah it's it's, you, it's been a long aiming towards a specific month did i miss that before uh, I'd, I'd like to go back in maybe April next year. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm planning to head back with my son. So uh, I've got a 10-year-old boy who I'd oh, like... Beautiful. <laughs> I'd like to plant the seed of this adventure into him So for the future. Oh, take him on safari too. I mean, what an amazing... <laughs> 
landscape. Yeah, but bizarrely very very similar. I found to Western Australia. Exactly, and and you know, uh, I'm also keen to take my son up to the Pilbara as well. We're we're hoping to sign the Indigenous Land Use Agreement sort of next year, maybe mid year. And have a Wonderful. big, you know, really nice celebration up on the Nungimata's block uh, up uh, in the Pilbara. So that'd be great yeah. to, you know, it's such a privilege to take my family to experience that. Yeah, because I expect there'd be an amazing Indigenous ceremony for that. Yeah, but just, I mean, it'd just be a wonderful celebration of, you know, like a real a real uh, gift really for the community to, to embrace. Of course, I'm hoping you get in a huge amount of coverage, but I'm expecting you must have and I've just, missed a lot of it because I've been either away or I don't know distracted mm. I mean it's it's a really massive project but we're not showy people we like to just you know head down tail up and crack on yeah um, I'm getting the impression because there's not yeah I, I to be fair I was looking for some stuff and I thought gee there's there's the kind of normal website stuff but yeah it's you have been head down bum up I can I can see that yeah an incredible project so congratulations for both of them really but listen Thank how you. do you see the renewable space evolving in Australia so I mean I've been I've been I've been in the sector now for 15 years and it's it's accelerating it's a really really interesting sector to work in um, just some stats I mean the, the, the amount of large-scale installed solar uh, installations, solar PV, is growing at 28% per year. So effectively it doubles That's exponential. globally. It is exponential. It, it doubles every 3.8 years. Yeah, right. And wind is growing at 13% compound growth. That doubles every 5.8 years. So just, I mean, wind and solar PV are the runaway winners for new generation. Yeah. And, and it's a matter of, of managing that growth, but also, you know, in, installing storage as well. Yeah. Because um, obviously it's, it's the intermittent generation sources, not unreliable, they're intermittent. Yeah, that's but right. So, so, is, so storage, I mean, is, storage is key. Well, it's like rainfall. Rainfall doesn't fall exactly when you turn the tap on. It's variable, so you have storage to manage, um, you know, manage supply and demand. So that's that's yeah. what's happening now with batteries and also with large-scale pumped hydro storage. Yeah, right. Um, and also in future with, with green hydrogen. So the Pilbara, our Pilbara project. I mean, it's just so exciting. I expect there's going to be a lot of opportunity for young entrepreneurs as well as scientists wanting to work in this space. Oh, of course, absolutely. So it's a, it's a really fantastic field to work in. I feel, I feel very... Yeah. What are some of the jobs that you could mention that, are, you know, that have emerged in this space that people could check out and think about looking into? So as a as a renewable developer, I mean, we have sort of development officers and development managers, and that, they are sort of project managers, people who coordinate, you know, all the balls in the air effectively yeah. and, you know, deal with consultants, deal with landowners and communities, with governments, with planners, all those sort of people. So communicators are so key, aren't they? Oh, absolutely critical, definitely. Um, but then we also have the technical side. So people who, you know, put wind masts up, who do all the data loggers, who manage the data, crunch the data to work out the resource, you know, the wind resource and the solar resource. Yeah. So I've, I've been in the development side, the, so the less technical yeah. side. Um, but I just, I love it. It's a fantastic job. Yeah, it is. I mean, and did you see yesterday the Labor Party outlined its energy policy batteries to subsidise solar power storage for households? Sure, yeah. I mean, obviously... Pop- I mean, high power prices are crushing Aussies. I know they're crushing me, <laughs> you know. 
Yes, like every time it, I get a power bill, I go, "Is this for real?" Because we don't we don't even feel like we use that much energy. Sure, I mean the biggest increases in power prices have been caused by the networks, the poles and wires. Uh, it's been caused by a dramatic increase in the price of gas because we're now exporting gas, and also inadequate retail competition and and frankly price gouging from some of the retailers. So yeah, every, everyone blames renewables, but the major factor driving down costs now is renewables. So it's it's adv- is it has it got anything to do with grid deflection as well? Like people just because they're on solar, there's so many people on solar now that people that are still stuck on the grid are paying a lot more. Well, almost everyone who's on solar is still on the grid, uh, but they export what they don't use in the daytime back to the grid. So that 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 effectively. So that's a transaction that's going to work for them. But if you don't have solar, I mean, I, that's where I think, God, they the people that don't have the solar who are still stuck on the grid, God, they're getting gouged. Well, not not by others who have solar. It, it's not quite that simple. Um, the, the, I guess the point is that um, the, the, the nature of generation and demand is changing so quickly. And, um, yeah, the concept of base load generation is just so anachronistic. Coal-fired power stations are really inflexible. They've got to keep chugging along doing their thing at a high level to be viable. But suddenly when demand gets sort of hollowed out in the daytime, by particularly by solar PV, they they struggle to to exist financially. So that's why they're going out of business because the way they work is not suited to the way that we consume these days. It's a completely different world. Well, I mean, let's face it, our political leaders have been pretty remiss in their policies to mitigate uh, climate change as well as simply not preparing us for new skill sets for the future workforce. I don't think anyway. Well, and I mean, clearly they're struggling, to, they're struggling around the whole concept of pricing carbon. I mean, climate change exists because of a market distortion. We don't pay for the external or externalities like pollution that, that fossil fuels cause. And, and the water that coal-fired power stations in particular use, those things are effectively gifted to the fossil fuel generators and, and therefore it's a market distortion. So Yeah, absolutely distorted. That's right. So, that's, so most of the argy-bargy is just struggling with the concept of putting a price on, on something that has been for free, carbon. And obviously, you know, a fair bit of um, incumbent industries with a lot of, you know, political power. But again, the world is changing under their feet so fast that it's a tidal wave that can't be stopped. I know. I mean, to be honest, I noticed other countries, I talked to you the other day about it, leapfrogging ahead, which is exciting for them. But at times I find it alarming because, I mean, am I wrong when I think we appear relatively far behind other countries when it comes to supporting businesses needed for a zero carbon future? Because I think, God, the amount of support the coal companies get is outrageous. We just don't seem to embrace wholeheartedly the tech that's there that can take us there. There's a big difference between the federal government and state governments. So in in the absence of action federally, a lot of the states have been setting really ambitious and progressive policies. So South Australia, definitely. The ACT, yes. Victoria now as well. The ACT really kept the industry alive through some pretty bleak years, frankly. So, yeah, there's, and again, I think the world is changing so fast that, you know, politics wax and wane. 
And I think, you know, the, the log jam that's impeded us for the last decade, I think, is about to, to burst, I hope. Oh, it feels like it. I can feel it in my bones, Andrew. So who are some of the people who are following in the conversation around renewable energy? For people who are interested to learn more, or are there bodies out there that would be good to follow globally or domestically that you find? You know, but this is a big deal, though, Andrew, that you find communicates in a clear data-driven way. So you know they're fairly accurate, but they're also brilliant communicators. Mm. I mean, I guess the standout example for me is, is Simon Holmes Accord. He's a really, really good communicator and extremely knowledgeable. So he can sort of cut through the bunkum very readily. Yeah, you can find um, him on Twitter. He's always and always quite funny too. Exactly, and he, he's very active with social issues too. So he's you know leading a campaign to get the kids off Nauru. Yes, um, yes and other things. So yeah, it's it's social with social media. You know, people who are exasperated about the lack of action. Uh, are really standing up and getting active and vocal. So, yeah, interesting times. I mean, what about bodies, specific bodies, if people were interested in in exploring the space more? I mean, even from a point of view of, yeah, you so... know, um, even high school students, you know, that are potentially interested, because I know I've got listeners who are parents and sometimes they pass information on to their kids about stuff because I talk about the future of work possibilities a lot on people my dog would like because I think it's it's you know it's a huge issue the gig economy is a huge issue and and uh, skilling up is a part of our future. So two of the key bodies for renewables are the Clean Energy Council and the Smart Energy Council and they run you know events and seminars often um, but also there's a, there's a, an event called All Energy in Melbourne every October. And that's a free event okay. and there's, there's days and days of really high quality uh, presentations and exhibitions. So, yeah, that's a good place to start. Hmm. Brilliant, because I'll whack all of that kind of information in the show notes as well. Now, listen, is there anything else that you, that I may have kind of glossed over that you wanted to expand on at all before we um, tie things up? I don't think so, other than, you know, obviously the world is changing much faster than most people realise. Renewables are getting so much cheaper and they're growing so fast that it is changing literally in front of our eyes and, you know, politicians don't get it yet. Um, but, there, but the main thing is that there are so many opportunities through this this change, so many jobs, um, so many new business yes, opportunities. There's so much, to, yeah, there's so much positive that's coming out of it. Yeah, so I'm not really so much involved in the politics side, but I'll just crack on with projects. So, yeah, I've got plenty on my plate with the Pilbara project, which again is a is a game-changing, enormous uh, renewable project, export-oriented. Yeah. Um, and then also with the, the African solar taxi, you know, bring, literally using renewable energy to save lives. So, yeah, just two examples of applied renewable. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I'm going to ask you a last question, though. If you were leading the country, what would you prioritise if you could, like an Australian-wide initiative in the renewable space in Australia? Where would you focus and what would you prioritise? So I think I'd deal with the core issue of, of carbon, you know, pricing carbon, whether it's a carbon, whether it's a, a tax or another mechanism, just resolve, resolving that market distortion, taking the handbrake off you know, the pent-up desire for innovation and really letting rip and make to make the most of Australia's competitive advantages with, with renewable with like with renewable resources and also with development of technologies because there's so much economic potential and social potential for Australia um, that other that other countries can replicate. That's what I'd do. I'd I'd take the handbrake off and and let rip with renewable innovation. I'd vote for you, Andrew. 
<laughs> so if people are interested to learn more about working in the renewable space, you've mentioned talk with Simon Holmes at court, those councils that I mentioned, I'll put those in the show notes. Um, thanks so much again for your time, Andrew. It's been pretty illuminating and inspiring to hear of the large project. If people are interested in learning more, where's the best place to contact you about particularly the um, African Taxi Project? Yeah, so just the website, www.africansolartaxi.com. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great. Thanks, Susie. See ya. Thank you.